Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. And this is Robert. And we're back with Jackson and we're starting his military career. Uh, basically beginning, he was elected um, Colonel of the Tennessee Militia early in the beginning of the 19th uh, century, 18 aughts. And then he really gets his military career kicked off with the War of uh, 1812 and some skirmishes with the Indians. So do you want to start in this? All right. Start, yeah. So we discussed before uh, the, the beginnings of, mani- of the, the uh, doctrine of manifest destiny and to a degree some of the sociological, psychological, and economic factors that contributed to the uh, chauvinistic racialist type of political ideology that was developing uh, during Jackson's early 40s. We discussed how Jackson had established himself as a a leading and prominent member of the uh, National Society, the capital of the territory and soon-to-be state of Tennessee. and the uh, developing uh, ideology leading up to the outbreak of military hostilities during the War of 1812. Uh, During the period leading up to the War of 1812, America was busy establishing its uh, identity as a separate society from Britain and from Europe. Uh, There were noted American writers, Hawthorne, uh, James Fenimore Cooper, and others who were developing a distinctive American voice in literature. Uh, There were schools of painting and prominently the Hudson School, Hudson River School, which were developing an American idiom in, in formal painting. So in Bellus Lettres and in Artis Bellus uh, or Bellus Artis, the American uh, character was being expressed. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars split Europe uh, as they developed as Napoleon uh, conquered more parts of Europe is the tendency towards more and more despotic uh, policies uh, leading to Napoleon's uh, self-coronation as the Emperor of the French. American public opinion more and more swung towards the British and interestingly even while we were becoming more Anglophile in our public opinion the need to establish our independence from Britain was rising to a head. And a number of British depredations on the high seas, taking American sailors off their ships, um, British encroachments along the Great Lakes, particularly in Michigan and the area now uh, around Detroit, led to increasing friction with the British, which finally in 1812 broke into warfare. Jackson as a man in his prime years, still physically vigorous, uh, prominent in Tennessee, ambitious for advancement, 
became one of the leading military leaders. 45. Hmm? He's 45 years 45 old. 45 years old, mid-40s. So um, the American army at that time still depended heavily on augmentation from state militias. Uh, we really didn't have a standing army. Uh, the, the requirements of Indian fighting and fighting the British simultaneously drew off most of the uh, cadre of the regular army. So the state militias filled the void. And in Tennessee, with the long southern border with the Spanish territories uh, in Mississippi, Alabama, western Georgia, Louisiana, Arkansas, and so on, uh, Jackson found the opportunity to uh, invade. Now, in uh, uh, the incident which sparked the Tennessee invasion of Alabama, which then was the home of you know what we described as the civilized Indian tribes, and which officially was a Spanish territory, was an event called the Fort Mims Massacre. Fort this Mims. was part of the War of 1812? Oh, was kind, of kind of a sideshow. Kind of a sideshow. Fort Mims was a... Also, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Sorry. How, how um, serious to our national sovereignty did people feel the War of 1812? Well, the administration obviously took it very seriously. And uh, it was a unifying war. I mean, we did coalesce as a separate country. And it's important enough in terms of history that a lot of uh, historians refer to it as the Second American Revolution, or the confirmation of the American Revolution. Yeah, Madison was the president. Okay. So um, The confirmation of the revolution, okay. Or the Second American Revolution. Uh, so... Uh, Fort Mims was located in north central Alabama and was basically settled by Southerners, probably mostly people from Tennessee with roots back in the Carolinas, and uh, an expanding area. Uh, they came into conflict with the, the Indian tribes in the area, and it developed into a, a series of skirmishes, which led the Indians to decide they had to... Uh, drive the whites out of the area. Uh, the whites fell back onto Fort Mims. It was besieged by an Indian army and uh, reduced, and the inhabitants basically were slaughtered. Okay. So we have the Fort Mims massacre in which uh, seven or eight score, 140, 180, 160-something uh, white women and children and the men folk were uh, slaughtered by the Indians. And the Indian militant movement uh, had the name of the Red Sticks, Baton Rouge. Uh, they were a society of braves. The, the Indian tribes always had had uh, a separate caste of people who were warriors. Mm -hmm. The Red Sticks 
provided society so that the warriors of each of the tribes and the regions could join together in, in an army which was there to resist the incursion of the Americans of the whites. And they became a rather formidable military force armed by the British, uh, retreating into Spanish territory. You know, and they were implicated at least in the Fort Mim massacre. And so the Tennessee legislature decided to send the Tennessee militia into Alabama to secure the, the, the territory, protect the white settlements there, and bring Alabama, Mississippi, and those areas into American jurisdiction. And Jackson was chosen as the leader of the expedition, as a general in chief. And I, I always view this, this segment of Jackson's career, his military expeditions in Alabama, Louisiana, and Florida, as the most interesting part. I mean, the, the military heat campaigns he carried on were carried on in conditions of extreme wilderness. Mm. Um, the Indian tribes which he campaigned against were, for the most part, pretty well organized, uh, well armed. So it wasn't had, a gimme. No, had had their, their leaders had sound strategic and, and tactical ideas, and the Indians were a formidable adversary for for the American forces operating against them. And the leadership of the of the forces really paid, paid played a key role in determining the outcome of the battles. Okay. So so Jackson's generalship. And more his, his just obduracy, his toughness. So uh, one of the examples was uh, before the Battle of, of Horseshoe Bend, the, the militia were operating pretty far into Alabama, uh, seeking to bring the Indian Army into combat with them, seeking battle against them. And the Tennessee legislature recalled the militia units. And Jackson said, well, we ain't going back. We're not going back. Right. Uh, and told the men that if it came to it, he would pay them out of, his own, out of his own proceeds, out of his own funds, if they continued the campaign. And that mollified them. And uh, Jackson uh, got yellow fever. Some, I mean, Jackson had a lot of episodes of severe illness and this was one where he was completely incapacitated was carried around laid in bed for hours you know tried to maintain the momentum of the military campaign from the sick bed and was able to give orders but gave them through staff officers so he didn't have contact with his rank-and-file soldiers okay. and uh, had had Authorization for the expedition rescinded. So basically, he was operating a rogue invasion of Spanish territory, operating against rather powerful Indian adversaries, yeah. who potentially could have launched an invasion of Tennessee on their own, okay. and was sick. And his men pretty much decided, well, General Jackson's a great guy, but we're going back. Right. And Jackson got out of his sick bed, got on a horse, rode up to a crossing in the road that his armies had to converge on and cross, sat there with a shotgun, 
and told them, y'all are going back. Yeah. You're going to fight. Yeah. And somebody protested and Jackson pulled back the hammers on the shotgun, slung it over his arm, turned the horse so that the barrels of the shotgun were facing the mass of soldiers that first one who comes at me gets the buckshot. Jeez. And yeah. if the rest of you can get the gun away from me, you can go past. Yeah. And uh, basically shamed his men back into a battle against the Indians, and they fought the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which entailed attacking the Indians in their stronghold on a peninsula in a big river and uh, trapping them there, overpowering them, and in a, in a basically a stand-up infantry battle, defeating the Indians and uh, crushing the Red Sticks. And with them, the Indian uh, resistance in the current states of Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Western Georgia, and Alabama. So uh, after that victory, uh, Jackson went on to de command the defense of New Orleans, which uh, the British were threatening. And, and, and New Orleans is a critical American port. Mm -hmm. It's either the second or the third uh, busiest American port in terms of the tonnage of shipping moved through it. It controls the access from the Mississippi to the oceans of the world. Uh, the uh, freight that comes down the Mississippi and it's shipped to the rest of the world is big bulky freight, right. grain, iron ore, stuff that takes a lot of a lot of room in ships, stuff that other nations are willing to pay for. And not having the Port of New Orleans in American hands uh, would have crippled American authority in the whole Mississippi Valley, right. you know, approximately a third of the continental expanse of the United States. So maintaining the control of the, of the, of the Port of New Orleans was a critical uh, American objective, and, and Jackson was the general in charge of that. Right. And the British Army had its elite units freed by the capture of Napoleon and his exile in Elba, which occurred contemporaneously. So uh, the British essentially sent their best officers and their most seasoned, experienced, and competent soldiers to capture New Orleans. Okay. So Jackson was facing essentially the cream of the British Army, okay. or as they like to say in French, the creme de la creme, All right. the cream of the crop, the cream of the cream. And the outlook for the Americans was really poor because the army was not doing well. The Navy had no capability in the area. And Jackson actually had to depend on the pirate chieftain, Jean Lafitte, you know, and, and you know, we talk about the pirates of the Caribbean. And Lafitte was the real pirate of the Caribbean. You know, he had a, a fleet of ships and a fleet of ship owners who were loyal to him. They preyed on the legal shipping in the Caribbean and in the Gulf of Mexico. You could either pay Lafitte protection money, and then you could ship unmolested, or if you didn't pay your 
protection money, they would take your ships and passengers and hold them for ransom or sell them themselves. And Lafitte actually had uh, enclaves along the Gulf Coast in Louisiana, Texas, uh, Mississippi, that were controlled by the pirates uh, against the, the, the Spanish government or the Mexican government who were, who were nominally in charge. So uh, in dealing with Lafitte, I mean, Jackson uh, carried out a very high order diplomatic mission. And uh, Lafitte is often given credit for being the actual generator of the American victory at New Orleans. He supplied the idea of using cotton bales in the fortifications because you can't dig in the land in southern Louisiana because the soil is so porous and so wet. It fills in as fast as you dig it out. Mm -hmm. So they had to use over, over the surface uh, fortifications and they didn't have time to cut the lumber. So, you know, Lafitte came up with the idea to use the cotton bales. And they are effective in stopping bullets, stopping the type of artillery shells they used at the time. And amazingly, the pirate leader Lafitte had enough cotton bales for them to use for their, yeah. their fortifications. So uh, Jackson found a place between some levees where they could control the movement of the British soldiers. The British had to narrow down their ranks and pass through this, this very narrow defile. And Jackson stationed his soldiers kind of in a U behind the defile so the British could come out into an open area. And then the uh, American sharpshooters had free fields of fire from like about 220 degrees into this mm -hmm. area where the British were uh, herded into. And you it, was know, a route. it was a complete route. I mean, it was a complete route. Um, there's a song, the, Brady, the Battle of, of New Orleans, you know, uh, British kept coming, British kept coming, but it wasn't nigh as many as there was a moment before, you know, uh, in reference to the British feeding in more and more soldiers, but the soldiers basically being gunned down. And the American ingenuity in fashioning cannons out of tree trunks and barrels and bells and all sorts of other things. It's kind of typified in that, uh, in that same song, The Battle of New Orleans. Uh, they used an alligator for uh, a cannon and talked about stuffing in the cannonballs, stuffing in the gunpowder. And when they touched the, the, the gunpowder off, the gator lost its, you know, it was stuff from the rear end, but right. the gator lost his mind. Right. Uh, Southerners don't use that kind of terminology. They right. describe the part of the alligator that actually did get blown off. Right. So um, this was a, this was a massive American victory. And it sealed put, the war. Put, well, the war was over. Okay. The war was over. I mean, but the 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 communications were so slow. Neither side realized that the war had been completed by the Treaty of Ghent. Uh, again, to sit in How Belgium. much earlier? Maybe like three months. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, but had the British won, they surely would have held New Orleans. And, and this... strangled the American Republic. And this um, victory pushed 
Jackson into the national spotlight? This made Jackson the, the man of the hour. You know, we only had like one or two victories. I mean, Chippewa was our main victory. It's, it's a battle streamer on the Army flag. Right. Uh, General Winfield Scott commanded it. It made his career as the General-in-Chief of the American Army until like the Civil War, you know, 40 years later. Right. Uh, mostly we lost. Mostly we were pretty humiliated by the outcome. I mean, they burned Washington. Right. You know, the White House is white because it was scorched right. by the British burning it in 1813. Right. So uh, we really needed this victory. We needed it, A, to maintain our control of New Orleans, but B, we beat the best British troops that they had and beat them badly and established that uh, a British invasion of America was just not tenable. Mm -hmm. All right, so how how does... Is that the end of Jackson's military career? No, he still had to conquer Florida. All right, so, so let's go to that. Uh, what's the largest city, town, municipality in Florida? Now? Yeah. Miami. No. Largest, oh, in land area? Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Okay. Okay, Jacksonville, Duval County. Okay. Um, Jacksonville is named after Jackson. Sure. Uh, the capital of Mississippi, Jackson, is named after Jackson, mm -hmm. you know. And these are testaments to Jackson's role in conquering those areas from the, from the Indians and from the Spaniards. Spaniards had Florida divided, East Florida, West Florida. East Florida is basically what we now call the Panhandle. Uh, East Florida? You mean West, West Florida? West Florida is the Panhandle. The Tallahassee? And, yeah, East Florida Tallahassee is, is the part. Tallahassee sounds like an Indian name, yeah. yeah. So uh, the Spaniards maintain their uh, control, their nominal control over Florida. Uh, it was a haven for runaway slaves, for pirates. Georgia was also a haven for runaway slaves. Georgia was a haven for debtors from England. Oh, debtors. So um, both in terms of protecting the southern flank of the American Republic uh, for uh, enhancing the nascent doctrine of manifest destiny that the American Republic should occupy the whole American continent and for driving European uh, colonialists out of America, it was imperative for the United States to conquer Florida. However, the diplomatic uh, niceties of the time pretty much forbade our invasion. Uh, we were not at war with Spain. Invading a colonial area is Spain's a, power was waning though, no? A bellicose act. Well, Mexico would, would revolt in eighteen in 18, eighteen eighteen. Well eighteen eighteen, but you know uh, um, I think Jackson was in Florida in fifteen sixteen. Eighteen sixteen. Yes, eighteen fifteen, eighteen sixteen. Mexico rebelled eighteen eighteen. So there was a lot of restiveness right. and ferment in the Spanish territories. And Jackson recognized, you know, now's the time for us to go in. And he had some support in the cabinet, but uh, the official government position was that we will maintain peace with Spain. And Jackson invaded and took over, and the president 
ordered him back, and he refused until the area was well secured. Madison? Um, I believe by now it was probably Monroe. Mm-hmm. And Did he have any cheeky words when he no. refused to go back? No, he wasn't. He wasn't that sort. I mean, at, at the most, he would have been like Nelson. You know, the famous incident of Nelson being told, oh, Admiral, the, uh, the orders are for uh, us to re- retire. Nelson turning his back, putting his spy gas glass to his arm and says, I don't see any orders. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jackson was more that type of a leader that he just ignored the order until uh, a diplomatic treaty could be worked out that ceded Florida to us. All right. And so he goes in and took over. But he faced Indian resistance. There was no real Spanish resistance. Well, whatever Spanish resistance was there was quickly crushed. Um, the Indian tribe was the Seminoles. And the Spanish didn't see it as and a, they resisted. as a war as an act of war against them. They probably did, but they were in no position to um, They were worried about Mexico. Well, they were worried about Mexico. They were probably worried about rebuilding after the Napoleonic conquest. And the uh, Secretary of State very wisely offered monetary concessions. And they took it? For, of course. They I mean, it. you know, why fight when you can get a big payday? Okay, so Jackson, should, I mean, he did a lot for the South. He did a lot for the South. And his, his name is enshrined in, you know, two southern cities that I just mentioned, but a lot of other little towns and so on all through the South. Okay, so he, when does Florida become a state, do you know? Mm, maybe the 20s. Okay, so it's a territory. Well, yeah, it became a territory, yeah. Okay, and is there anything of note in the war against the Seminoles? Uh, it was a messy war. Uh-huh. Uh, we were completely unequipped to fight it. We had no idea how to do it, you know, I mean... I remember as a little boy seeing a movie about it and showed the American soldiers with the big old shakos, the big high fur hats, and the white belts X'd across their chests, you know, great West Point type uniforms, you know, big muskets, big mm-hmm. packs, mm-hmm. wading around chest deep mm-hmm. in the swampy mango swamps. Mm-hmm. And then guys would like disappear, you know, and then alligators would swim away, you know. So, you know, so. You know, we really, uh, Seminoles beat us pretty decisively and uh, stayed uh, pretty much by themselves in the fastnesses of Central Florida. So what happened? The Seminoles retreated into Central Florida? We just decided, okay, this is ours politically. Well, we went after them. We went after them and found out, ooh, this ain't working. Okay, and then we just left them alone, but we decided And we just basically kind of surrounded them and said, yeah, you know. Eventually, we'll get to the end. Yeah. Issue. But yeah. basically, we just said politically, this is our territory now. You guys, we'll deal with you in a second. Well, we'll deal with you with you if we have to. You know, because Florida was not seen as a country that was profitable for American settlement. I mean, it was it swampy. It, was it wasn't flat. seen like it, it's turned out to be for us. Well, it's you have to remember, state, it, was, it was the airliner and air conditioning. That made the Florida, settlement Florida. of Florida possible. Sure. All right. Um, 
his military career, where does he rank in your mind, I mean, briefly, among the great American generals? Uh, so I would, I, would, I would tend to rank him pretty, pretty high up there. I mean, he was, he was he, tactically, he was very astute. Strategically, he had a vision of conquest. You know, I mean, like it or not, military conquest is part of nation building. Uh, he had a, a strategy for conquest, which was critical to the survival of the United States. I mean, imagine if our southern border were along the southern border of, of, of Tennessee mm, be totally and Missouri. I mean, we wouldn't be the United States. Um, he had a very, very uh, negative attitude towards European settlement or European sovereignty. You know, basically drove the Spanish into the sea. You mean European colonial? European colonialists. Right. Um, had an expansion. He took that personally. I don't know that he took it personally, but after well, you he know, took the British personally. Well, after, yeah, I mean, he really hated the British, but I think he pretty much put the Spaniards in the same. In the same pot. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he had a very expansionary attitude towards the the land, you know, that the Americans were going to take it over, that the Indians were going to submit, uh, the Europeans were going to be driven out. Um, I He didn't see this as a nation of immigrants. He saw this as a, a nation that was going to be built by the American birth rate. He did consider it to be American. Yeah. And is that part of the reason? I mean, we'll get into it later, but he's pretty anti-secession. That could be part of the reason. Well, he was he was a nationalist. You know, he thought this is the United States of America. Now, and we'll get to that in a moment. But um, he definitely thought that the American flag should fly over everything from sea to shining sea, including the Gulf of Mexico. Um, okay. All right, so we'll move into next his political career, which is going to start off in the next episode. Do you have anything you want to add about his military career? Um, basically, the military campaigns broke him physically. You know, they really aged him. Uh, he, you know, whatever. Did he like it? Whatever disease vector it was that affected him, he had you know these horrible, shaky, feverish diseases. Um, Nobody, I don't think anybody likes military campaigning. It, it, it uh, creates great hardship. Uh, you live under very primitive conditions. You know, you're living in a tent. You're outdoors all the time. You're eating whatever you eat. Uh, cholera breaks out a lot in these camps, which shows there's bad sanitation. Uh, you know, you're constantly engaged either in very, very hard, difficult work or marching or fighting, you know, none of which are enjoyable activities. So I think he really saw this as kind of a higher calling, a higher calling or higher higher level type of, of activities. Higher, you know, the, it was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice, and he did show himself as a very very competent executive in very very difficult conditions. Did he look back later on fondly on the times, or he thought of it as a? Did he see it as a as part of his as part of a thing that propels his success? It's hard to say what he he I, I I can't think of any 
retrospective comments that he made about it. But clearly he thought it was his duty. He carried it out. Uh, the fact that he <clears throat> fought on despite the repeal of his authority shows that he was personally invested in it. He had a very astute understanding of the politics because he knew he wasn't going to be clapped into, into irons and treated as a rebel, but that there were powerful political factions who would support him. So uh, they, they, there's a lot of different facets of his political did, leadership that are shown in his and, military campaigns. And did the British or the Indians have an opinion of him? Well, they hate him. They, the Indians still hate him. Okay. I but, mean, but for his military campaigns or for his uh, Indian policy? There's, a, there's an episode of the House of Cards mm -hmm. in which the uh, Kevin Spacey character is mm -hmm. uh, running for president or running for re-election as president, and he has to go to a, a, a man who is a, a tribal elder and who controls the treasury from uh, casinos, Indian okay. casinos. And um, he comes to visit him, you know, and Spacey wants to shake him down for campaign funds. Okay. And the guy walks in and there's a portrait of Andrew Jackson, the founder of the Democratic Party hanging there. And the Indian guy just basically says, how could you put that up? How could you insult me with my having to see that picture? Yeah. So the, the Indians hate him. Okay. I mean, and that persists. And the, the British? The, the British, like in Britain, I mean, did they have a contemporary view of him? Uh, they probably, you know, had the same view of him they would have towards Napoleon or any of the okay. other generals who defeated their forces. Before we move on to the next, uh, to finish our episode, did the when he wins in New Orleans later on he becomes a a, lead, a factional leader in a way. I mean, at least once he enters politics, he takes a side, and he has political opponents. So he has part of the country, at least, that objects to him, or objects to what he stands for, let's say. When he's in winning, when he wins about New Orleans, is he universally acclaimed at that All point? All right, so, so that's, a, that's a good question. Because when he was inaugurated, the contemporary view of him was that the Vandals have taken over. Okay, cat, vandals with a capital V, sure. like the old tribe, you right. know, that invaded the Roman Empire right. and sacked Rome. Right. Okay, that this untried and clearly fallacious idea of universal male sovereignty's champion had taken the highest executive power in the American government. Mm -hmm. And the whole society was going to collapse imminently because... Mm -hmm. The common man just wasn't up to the duties of democratic government. So the military conquests gave Jackson a stature in the political scheme of things that offset his demerits as the tribune of the people. Okay. 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 All right. So that was a balance. Yeah. All right. All right, so we'll end here. Our next episode, we're going to go into um, Jackson's, the beginning of Jackson's political career. All right, thanks for listening. This is Presidential Podcast. I'm Philip. And I'm Robert. Have a great day.